the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. For those of you new to the show, welcome. We always welcome new listeners. And this show is in two parts, not equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. As far as elder law is concerned, we want to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, sometimes entertainment. Today, we're, we're, we're talking a lot about history. We're talking with one of my favorite authors, Richard Brookheiser, who wrote a book about legendary Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. Some people think that John Marshall was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was actually, I think, the third or the fourth. But he's the most prominent in those early times. A very interesting man, very interesting time in American history. And of course, Richard Brookheiser is a, a an expert on the you know beginning of the the American Republic. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and of course now John Marshall. We also have you know an actor, John McGinley, and he's star of a TV show that until I started talking to him, didn't even know existed. And I, he berated me a little oh, bit for that. Stan Against Evil. I don't know. Have you seen Stan Against Evil? I'm going to see it now. But have you seen Stan Against Evil? I haven't. Okay. So you can't criticize so me either. On, look at all the stations. You know, it's very confusing for, for me. I'm an old timer. All right. In any event, somebody's got to look on it on the independent film channel and we got it. Uh, uh, tape. That's, you know, like a word from the 20th century. We, we got to record, <laughs> you know, Stan Against Evil because I got to see it now. And it, it does sound a little bit interesting. It does sound interesting. I do want to see the series and hope our guests for, for the best. But in the meanwhile, state planning elder law. What's one question that you seem to be getting a lot that we, we haven't asked in a specific question on the emails? These are, it's, it's all the time in the emails. And we, I have lumped a, a, a hundred emails together with this one question. What is the difference between a living will and a health care proxy? You know, that's one question that does come up all, all along. Basically, a health care proxy is a form recognized by New York State in which you can appoint an agent. Again, it's usually a family member. It doesn't have to be. But a family member who can make medical decisions on your behalf if you can't speak for yourself. And in addition to that, very important, it allows that family member to get access to your medical records. 
if it's if it's worded properly. We go back to Terry Schiavo, which I, I, maybe some of you remember when, when Father Pavone talked about Terry Schiavo. She went through a very horrible death because, in part, because she didn't have a health care proxy. She didn't have anybody in charge. And her husband wanted her to die. And it's I'm putting it blunt, but that's what comes up because he wanted to get remarried to someone else. Her parents wanted to keep her alive, and they were willing to take over the responsibility to keep her alive. But the husband pushed his case. He was the next of kin, and he wanted her to, to die, and she died a horrible death, parched out or whatever. And, and by the way, it took the courts 14 years to resolve the matter. You know, it wasn't was something that was decided overnight. But in any event, you can choose the person to make those medical decisions on your behalf if you can't speak yourself. That's a health care proxy. Now, what's a living will? A living will is, is not legally binding. It's, it's basically a statement of wishes. Like the thrust of a living will might be, if I have cancer, if I'm terminally ill, I don't want to be resuscitated. If I'm brain dead, I don't want extraordinary measures to keep me alive. You know, again, it's not legally binding. It's a statement of your wishes. I think some people sign a living will without really realizing what they're signing. In other words, a lot of people sign, a, a, you know, what, what might be a standard form to, in some eyes. And the standard form might say, I, I don't want tubular feeding. I don't want intravenous feeding. And I don't know if those people realize that what you're saying is that in, in some of those cases, I want to be starved to death. And, you know, people go into coma, comas and come out of comas. I, I think some people sign those without discussing it, talking it over. And, you know, that's one of the things. If you do sign a living will in Connors and Sullivan, I want to make sure it's what you want. You really understand what you're doing because I can't tell you how many times I've had people come in with living wills and they really don't understand what's in it. And I've had people that uh, believe in the sanctity of life, certain religious teachings, and they may be signing a living will that goes against those teachings just because they don't quite realize what they're signing. So a living will is a statement where and it's not legally binding and and that's why you need the healthcare proxy. You want somebody who's in charge to make decisions on your behalf. And 90 95% of the time it's going to be a family member. Your spouse, your son, your daughter, your trusted nephew or niece. You want them in place to make medical decisions on your behalf if you can't speak for yourself. Now each week Kevin McCullough questions are emailed to him and he chooses one of those questions and he asks he asks me on the air to answer those questions from one of his listeners. So Kevin McCullough, take it away. All right. Every single week, we get to ask Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan a very important question about estate planning or elder care and uh, the laws pertaining to such. And uh, Mr. Connors, this week, uh, Cassandra writes us and says, Mr. Connors, my son died leaving a six-year-old daughter. He's He was not married, has no will. What rights do I have as his mother and grandmother of the child regarding his estate? Mike Connors? Well, ordinarily, you have, she would have no rights as regarding to the estate. She may get visitation rights in family court or whatever. Now, I, I would assume, and I can't assume this, but that's the problem with email questions, uh, that the mother of the child would be appointed the guardian of the child in court and would handle the assets with the court until the child is 18 years of age, which, of course, is not great. That's why you need a will. And, I mean, this is the mess you get. The assets are going to be administered through the court until the child is 18. The child will get those assets on his or her, or in this case, her 18th birthday, which is not necessarily good. You want an 18-year-old to get control of a lot of money. And the grandmother, you know, could have been appointed guardian or co-guardian under a will. But there's no will. There's no plan. And we got a mess. Yeah. So the the lesson of this then really is make sure you've taken care of your plan and your will uh, and don't leave a mess for other people. 
Right. You know, a lot of single people or, you know, single parents, whatever, say, I don't need a will. I don't have any assets, but they've got a minor child. And you want to appoint the person to take care of that minor child or be that minor child's representative in court. And that's one of the most important parts about a will when you have children under the age of 18. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So, friends, if you're feeling convicted and feel like you gotta, you you got to get your will together, uh, give uh, Connors & Sullivan a call. They excel in helping people plan properly. 718-238-6500 is the number. 718-238-6500. You can also, se- also send your questions to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And make sure to listen to Ask the Lawyer Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570 The Mission and Saturday evenings at, not, at uh, 6 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again for Kevin McCullough for giving us time on his show to to answer those questions. Again, you can count, you can catch Kevin McCullough each Monday through Friday, five o'clock on nine seventy The Mission. Of course, the five o'clock hour on Wednesday is shared with John Katzimatidis, and he's also on you know five seventy The Mission from Monday to Friday. At three o'clock, and you know, I think sometimes some of our uh, maybe we're we're giving a little bit too too short a shrift to our mission listeners because I really do love our mission listeners because as a group of people, I'm very impressed with their commitment to our faith. And so, uh, you know, if you're listening to me on AM five seventy, the mission, thank you. If you're listening to us on nine seventy, the answer, thank you. Thank you to all our listeners for for paying attention to us and coming to our office. I, you know, every day I don't even, I'm very lucky. And every day I, I meet a couple of our listeners, you know, in one of our offices. Okay. We're going to take a short break at the end of the break. We're going to be talking to John McGinley, the actor, uh, in stand against evil. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, November 27th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., then in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S, on Wednesday, November 28th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. and finally at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens on Friday, November 30th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the UN published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. 
time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is actor John McGinley, who many of you know as Dr. Perry Cox in Scrubs. But we're going to talk about today the series is involved with now. How you doing today, John? Hey, great, Mike. How are you? Okay, so what you're, you're in a series called Stand Against Evil. What is that about? It's Archie Bunker fighting witches. Archie Bunker, okay. So what kind of witches do you have in there? Well, we've got 172 witches who, uh, who want this guy dead. And so you got to do something about it to 172 witches once you're dead, right? Right, I guess so. So what does your character do when he's Archie Bunker? So he's not too bright, I would assume. What would Archie Bunker do with 172 witches, Mike? He'd start he killing them. over the head with a lead pipe, right? Right. Come on, baby. How'd you get involved? How does he get involved with these witches in the first place? Well, it's a town. It's a fictitious town in upstate New Hampshire there where, where we find out that these, these witches were burned at the stake 200 years ago, and now they want their revenge. So they kill every constable who's the, who's the policeman of this town, and I'm the, I'm the latest version of that. So you've got to die. So how, how, how are you surviving for uh, the last couple of years? His wife, unbeknownst to him, has been going out every night and protecting him, but now she's dead. Mike, you got to tune in. Okay, I, I haven't. I'm sorry. I will from, you know, today on. Uh, but it's on the independent right, film. Back. Well, how'd you get involved in acting in the first place anyway? Let's go into a little bit of history. But Stand Against Evil, yes, we'll talk about it some more. How'd you ever get involved in acting in the first place? Went to NYU grad, got out, did pretty close to 100 films, 400 hours of television, so like that. Was Platoon your biggest break, your first break, major? Uh, Platoon definitely was my was the first break I got, yeah. What was it like, you know, Oliver Stone, what was it like Vietnam, Vietnam era film, I should say? What was it like in, in that film? There's a great documentary coming out called Brothers in Arms, which is a making of, a look at the making of Platoon that a friend of mine, Paul Sanchez, did. I highly recommend it. It's on Amazon now. It's on Hulu. It's called Brothers in Arms. It's a documentary about the making of Platoon. It's fascinating. Okay, did you feel the film was realistic, close it to was, history? Yeah. Oliver yeah. served two tours, so he ripped it out of his sternum, yeah. What, what was your favorite film, your favorite film role? I don't have a favorite. You don't have a favorite. Next one? I don't know, um, but I, it's, it's hard to... It's, I mean, we, we just did Glengarry Glen Ross on Broadway with Al Pacino and Bobby Cannavale a couple of years ago. That was, that was pretty exciting. But I don't know about favorite film. They, they all kind of... It's, it's hard to segregate one from the other. What's the difference for you between acting and film and, let's say, acting on a stage play? There's no difference. You, the, the curtain goes up or somebody calls action and you've got to do something. You have to, you, you have to come up with a verb. You have to come up with an action and do something. There's absolutely no difference. Does it matter if there's a live audience or not? No. There's a hundred, when you're doing a film, there's a, hundred, there's a crew of 160 people. It's all the same thing. You've got to do something. Yeah, but if you misspeak in a film, you can do it over. Well, you don't. You learn your lines. Okay. You don't ever misspeak. Well, some people do every Never. once in a while. They didn't do their homework. Now, Stand Against Evil, 200 years ago, witches were burned, right? And so they're coming back for revenge, and you happen to be the sheriff. They're taking revenge out on you. Why just the sheriff's? Were they burned by a sheriff? Were they burned by a constable? Yes, they were burned by a constable, and so now all the constables are, are now haunted by these 172 souls who want, uh, who want revenge. And that's the basic construct of the show. So why would you take a job as a sheriff in that town in New Hampshire? I uh, didn't know it. He was not aware. And for 27 years, he's been protected by his now-dead wife, who gets killed in the first three minutes of the pilot three years ago. And that's where we start with this guy. So he's damaged. He's a really injured guy. And so that's what's interesting to see. To see when men are that wounded, what are they going to do about it? How, how are they going to reconcile their conditions? Or can they? Or, or do they want to? And all this guy wants to do is watch the History Channel and drink a beer, and he can't because there's 
172 witches are trying to kill them. What about the rest of the townspeople? They're fine. They're not constables. But they don't care whether their constables are being or their sheriffs are being assaulted or, you know, people trying to kill them? Does anybody know about these witches? No one knows about them. So only he knows about it. He and then the new, the new woman, he gets fired in the first three minutes of the show, like I said. Uh, and so the woman comes in to replace him. She comes to find out about it as well. And so then they're kind of a classic comedy team where they're oil and water, but they got to do this together or it's not going to work out. So they got to find a, they got to find a way to work together. Otherwise this whole thing is going to just crash. Okay. I promise you stand against evil. I'm going to check in on the show. Good luck to you. Thank you for being on Connor's corner. Thank you, Mike. All the best. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. But if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. 
now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, it's been a while since we had somebody from National Review on the show, and that's my fault. We probably haven't reached out. But we're correcting that a little bit because we're having Richard Brookseiser, who's got a book about John Marshall. The Supreme Court's been in the news a lot recently, and the guy who probably made the Supreme Court a newsworthy organization was John Marshall. Welcome to Connors Corner, Richard. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your book, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court, John Marshall. Why is that title? John Marshall was the fourth chief justice. He gets the job uh, in 1801. He's a lame duck appointment by President John Adams. So in the first 11 years of the Supreme Court, there had been three chief justices. Uh, One was a recess appointment. He was not confirmed by the Senate. The other two uh, quit the job after five or six years. So John Jay, the first one, and Oliver Ellsworth, the third one. So uh, that, that's a fair amount of turbulence. Marshall is in there for 34 years. He swears in five presidents in nine inaugural ceremonies. Uh, 34 years is still a record for a chief justice. So he's there for a long time. He also uh, issues, the court issues a lot of unanimous opinions, many of them written by him. He gives the court a solidity and a unanimity, which gives it authority. And he he steers it through some very um, difficult political challenges, uh, and it it weathers those. By the end, by the time he steps down, the Supreme Court is a peer of Congress and of the president, which it hadn't been when when it first um, went to operation. What was the perception of the Supreme Court and George Washington's administration and John Adams? How did it change? Well, it, you know, it it didn't make a few decisions that had some importance. One of them was immediately rebuked by a constitutional amendment. That was a case called Chisholm v. Georgia, in which um, a citizen of a state different from Georgia sued the state of Georgia. And the case went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Chisholm won his suit. And all the states were so <laughs> alarmed by this that in within four years, they'd passed the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, which made it unconstitutional for a citizen outside a state to sue a state. Uh, so, so, all right, that was, that was an important decision, even though it was almost immediately shot down. But one problem with the Supreme Court uh, in those days, and this lasted until after the Civil War, justices had to ride circuit. They also had to serve as circuit court judges, which is the second highest level uh, in the federal court system. And for the first 11 years, the circuits were enormous. There were only three circuits for the entire United States. There was northern, middle, and southern. So, you know, the northern one was New York and all of New England, and the middle one uh, was Pennsylvania and the Chesapeake and and uh, all of Virginia. And the southern one, you know, it was just vast, and the roads were terrible. 
Uh, one justice uh, got thrown out of his, his carriage, and the one of the carriage wheels went over his leg and broke it. Uh, another one was trying to cross the river over the ice in the winter, and he fell through and had to be pulled out. I mean, it was just punishing, punishing work. Now, um, after Marshall came in, uh, Congress changed the law a bit, so the justices still had to ride circuit, but they they split the circuits up, so there were six instead of three. So you still had to do this awful job, but it was only half as bad. So it was a lot of work for not much clout. And when um, when John Jay, he was the first chief justice, he was in there for six years, then he ran for governor of New York, which also tells you something. Could you imagine John Roberts stepping down to run for governor of whatever state <laughs> he's from? I mean, it's inconceivable, right. but that's what Jay did. And then when John Adams is looking for a fourth chief justice because the third guy had bad health and he wrote and he said, I got to quit. Adams thought of Jay putting him back in there. He nominated him. The Senate confirmed him. And then Adams got a letter from Jay saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to take the job. It has no dignity. You know? so that and that's for a man who served. Yeah, that was the man of the view, the first man who held it. He said, I'm not going to do that again. Um, but so, so and so that's how John Marshall got the job. He was the second uh, he was the second choice. And he um, gives it dignity over 34 years. That's what he gives it. Dignity and authority. Who was John Marshall before he was appointed to the Supreme Court? Well, he um, he's from Virginia. He served in the Revolution for uh, almost the whole length of it, uh, 1775 to 81. After the war, he becomes a lawyer in Richmond. Uh, he's a very successful lawyer. He's very good at it. Uh, and he holds some political offices, you know, state-level offices in Virginia. And uh, then in the late 1790s, he, he gets summoned to Mount Vernon by his old commander-in-chief, George Washington. And America already has a two-party system. There's the Federalist Party of Washington and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Then there is the Republican Party of, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. In no relation to the current GOP, it, it becomes the Democratic Party, but that, that was its first name. So Washington is, is very alarmed about the weakness of the Federalist Party in Virginia, and he, he's calling Marshall to Mount Vernon to tell him, you've got to run for Congress. You know, Marshall doesn't want to do it because he's making nice money as a lawyer, and he, he begs off and he begs off, but Washington is insistent. And uh, one story has it that, that Marshall was so anxious, made so anxious by all this, he decided, I'm going to get up at the crack of dawn and just leave. I can't, I can't take Washington asking me anymore. But Washington had gotten up earlier and put on his old uniform. <laughs> so Marshall felt, all right, I got to run for Congress. He runs, he wins. Uh, then John Adams makes him his Secretary of State at the very end of the Adams administration. So when John Adams is in the White House as a lame duck, he's already lost uh, uh, the election of 1800 to Thomas Jefferson. And John Jay has just written him to say that he will not become Chief Justice again. Adams is sitting in the Oval Office with his Secretary of State, John Marshall, and he says, who shall I appoint now? And Marshall doesn't say anything. And Adams looks at him and says, I believe I'll nominate you. So that's how he got the job. Now, what was the confirmation 
process like back then? Obviously, it was a lot different. A lot different. There were no hearings. I mean, hearings don't happen until the 20th century. There could be opposition. Um, and remember, I, I mentioned there'd been a, a recess appointment of a of a chief justice when Washington was president, and then the, the Senate wouldn't confirm him when they came back into session. So there could, you know, there could be people shot down, but there there were no hearings. Uh, Marshall had pretty easy had pretty easy sailing, uh, and he he actually served. Uh, the Supreme Court had two terms in those days. There was a, a term in January or February, February, then one in the summer. These were these were very short terms, no longer than a month. Uh, although they actually they they worked pretty hard. They they heard a lot of cases in those brief times, and then Congress later very soon changed the law, got rid of the summer term. But so Marshall has his uh, first um, session as Chief Justice at the tail end of the Adams administration before he swears in Thomas Jefferson as the third president. And the interest of that is he and Jefferson are cousins. They're uh, second cousins once removed. And Jefferson is probably the only man Marshall ever hated. Uh, and, and Jefferson hated him in return. Jefferson hated more people than, than that, but he certainly Marshall was on Jefferson's list also. I think that might be worth a comment because I think a lot of commentators, people today, think, well, back then everything was civilized and everybody liked each other. And I think they have oh, a false man. perception of, of, you know, 18th, 19th, early 19th century politics. It was worse. I really have to say it was worse. We're getting there. I mean, we're getting back to that level. But it was worse. And the proof of it is no one kills each other in duels. Right. I mean, uh, not that I know of. Scalise got shot up by that that crazy uh, Bernie supporter, but uh, it wasn't in a duel with Bernie Sanders. I mean, people, uh, political opponents fought duels and often sometimes they were killed. That's we all know that's how Hamilton died. But he but he wasn't he was by no means the only one. No, the politics, it was inflamed. It was poisonous. The election of 1800, this is the rematch between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, which Jefferson wins. It was one of the ugliest in American history. And uh, so why why do Marshall and Jefferson hate each other? Jefferson thinks that Marshall is a diehard Federalist, uh, which is pretty much the truth. He thinks that Marshall is a sophist, that he twists the words of the Constitution to get the results he likes. Uh, he tells he tells someone, uh, I would never answer a direct question that Marshall posed me. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, I don't know, sir, I cannot tell. Because he feared that Marshall would take whatever you said, yes or no, and he'd turn it into Marbury versus Madison. You know, he'd, he'd just do that. Now, Marshall's view of Jefferson, um, he thought he was a demagogue. He thought he played to popular passions. Uh, He thought that Jefferson pretended to be a hands-off president, but that he really wanted to run everything behind the scenes uh, through his allies in Congress, uh, which was true. That's how Jefferson ran his presidency. Uh, the main the main source of Marshall's dislike of his cousin was that he felt that Jefferson had stabbed George Washington in the back 
when Washington was president and Jefferson was Washington's secretary of state. And if you if you did dirt on George Washington, you just went to the top of Marshall's lifetime blacklist. There was no forgiveness for that. So so here are these two these two um, great Virginians and. Suddenly, Jefferson is president. His supporters uh, have control of the Senate and the House. It's a blue wave. But here's John Marshall from the losing party, the Federalist Party, at the head of the Supreme Court. So it's a it's a recipe for conflict, and, and conflict does indeed happen. Richard, we have to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, talking to Richard Brookhauser about our first prominent Chief Justice's Supreme Court, John Marshall. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We're talking to Rick, Richard Brookheiser about Chief Justice John Marshall. Marbury versus Madison, you mentioned it. Can you explain that to the audience? What what was the issue and what was determined? Well, that's that's probably the most famous uh, of Marshall's cases because it establishes uh, the, the precedent that the Supreme Court can overrule a law passed by Congress or a portion of a law passed by Congress if the court uh, believes that it's unconstitutional. Uh, I don't think that that was so radical when it happened as it's now taught in law schools. Uh, the concept of judicial review was already out there. It was familiar. Alexander Hamilton had written about this in the Federalist Papers. Uh, this had come up in the ratifying constitution conventions when the when the constitution was being ratified by the states it had come up in the virginia ratifying convention 
where John Marshall was one of the delegates, he'd actually spoken to this point and said that this is something that could happen. So it was not it was not like like a ruling from outer space. Uh, but, but let me tell you what, what the case was and why it was important at the time. Uh, William Marbury was a man who had, who had gotten a job as a justice of the peace in the District of Columbia. This is at the tail end of the Adams administration. John Adams, as the lame duck, is trying to hand out um, patronage, basically, to fellow Federalists. And one of the, the jobs he can fill is justices of the peace in the District of Columbia because the federal government runs the affairs in the district. So William Marbury and some other fed, Federalists get this job. Uh, the, the commissions, however, are not delivered by the time that the new administration comes in. A few of them have been left in the office of the Secretary of State, uh, signed and sealed, but they, they just had not been sent out. So uh, Jefferson and his team come in, and their attitude is, well, we're not, you know, we're not going to be the delivery men for our defeated opponents. If they couldn't bother to get these, to, you know, to the right people, we're we're just not going to take them. So William Marbury knows he had this appointment coming, and he sues Jefferson's Secretary of State, James Madison, and that would be the man responsible in those days for for you know, delivering such a commission. He says, I want my commission. Uh, and uh, the, the Jefferson administration refuses to respond to the suit. It's heard immediately in the Supreme Court because they have, um, uh, they have original uh, jurisdiction uh, uh, over, over such a case. And um, Marshall, Marshall rules that Marbury is asking for a writ, a particular kind of a writ that would direct the Secretary of State to give him his commission. And the reason he's asking for it is that the Judiciary Act of 1789, which set the whole federal court system up, among many other things, said that the Supreme Court had the power to issue these particular writs. Okay? So, but what Marshall decides is that in fact, according to the Constitution, the Supreme Court does not have the power to do that in this case because they don't have original jurisdiction in cases involving the Secretary of State. They only have it, you know, in other cases. They would have it if it was an ambassador, if it was a diplomat from a foreign country. But uh, in, in the case of the Secretary of State, they don't have the power to issue these writs. So therefore, he says... Um, William Marbury can't can't get his commission, but before he reaches that decision, that conclusion, it's a very long decision. It's nine thousand words long. It took him like a couple hours to read it. Uh, he he walks through the whole history of Marbury's problem, and he says Marbury should have gotten his commission. He has a right to it, and if you have a right to something, the legal system does give you redress. So he's basically reading a lecture to the Jefferson administration that they were wrong to have sat on this commission. Now, his conclusion is that issuing this particular writ is not something that the Supreme Court can do. In other words, yeah, Marbury, maybe you could try again, try some other way and get it. You just can't use this way. But the whole run up to that conclusion was basically an, uh, a 9,000 word lecture to the Jefferson administration saying that you were really 
bending the rules here. You you were not doing what you should have done. And people at the time noticed that. The, the headline on the New York Post, which was Alexander Hamilton's Federalist newspaper, was um, uh, Jefferson administration violates Constitution. <laughs> so <laughs> so he saw very clearly the, the kind of the political strategy, the politics of Marshall's decision. But the, the, the judicial part of it, uh, what, why it's a famous case, was that the Supreme Court ruled that a portion of a law passed by Congress was unconstitutional. And this wouldn't happen again until uh, the Dred Scott decision in 1857. Before or after Marbury versus Madison and then Dred Scott, what would you say is, is the one case you would like to highlight of John Marshall's Supreme Court tenure? I think I'd like to highlight Fletcher versus Peck. This was an 1810 decision. It involved a land sale by the by the state of Georgia. Uh, Georgia had this huge uh, back country, which is now the states of Alabama and Mississippi. That was originally part of Georgia. It went all the way to the Mississippi River. Georgia was a very poor state. Uh, the only way they could raise money to balance their books was by selling off all this land. So they had a, a fire sale for 35 million acres of land, and they sold it for a penny and a half an acre. Well, the whole thing was corrupt. The whole legislature had been had been bribed uh, to, to offer this bargain basement price, and the people who bought it, they, they immediately flipped it you know, to make a profit. Uh, the people of Georgia, when they found out that every legislator had gotten $1,000 for his vote, uh, there was outrage. Uh, new legislators were elected, and, and they canceled the sale. You know, they, they took it all back, and they also imposed penalties on anyone in the state of Georgia who would, who would hear a suit, a lawsuit, based on this sale. In other words, if you were a court clerk somewhere and you let someone you know, file papers for a suit, you'd be fined. So, so they're, they're taking it back and they're, they're trying to stamp it out so no one can, can re revive this sale. Well, you know, the land had already been resold. There'd already been other purchasers. People, you know, downstream from this original sale had already, you know, got their hands on portions of this land. And two, uh, two people from New England uh, one guy had bought some Georgia land from another, and then he said, well, wait a second, the sale has been rescinded. You didn't have legal title to that, so I want my money back. So, so these, were, these two men were Fletcher and Peck. Uh, they went to court. Uh, they were from two different states, so it becomes a matter for the federal court system. One was from Massachusetts. The other was from New Hampshire, and it comes up to the Supreme Court. Now, the reason why, uh, after giving all that backstory, the reason why this is important is that Marshall rules in favor of the validity of the sale. And he, the reason he does is he says, this is a contract. This sale was a contract. And uh, the, the Article One, Section 10 forbids the states from violating the sanctity of contracts. And and so he is saying doesn't matter if the original if there was corruption involved in the original sale. It's not the business of the Supreme Court, you know, to, to say whether a state government is good or bad or whether the people involved were nice or not nice. The sale was made. 
It was in there in black and white. That is a contract, and you can't go back on that later just by passing a law and saying, oops, I made a mistake. We're taking it back. And and he says that, that this provision of the Constitution, he calls it a bill of rights for the people of the states. Now, and that's that's kind of shocking because we think of the Bill of Rights as the first ten amendments. Yeah, freedom of speech, no established religion, right to keep and bear arms, um, no no um, searches and seizures without warrants. That's what we think of the Bill of Rights as. But Marshall is saying no. The Bill of Rights in the Constitution is the provision that guards the obligation of contracts. And he sees that contracts is an essential tool for the American economy and for the relations that people have with each other. You know, you're making deals all the time. But if these can be taken back by legislative action, by political pressure, who knows where we are? You know, an agreement you make could be um, undone next year or two years down the road. And what kind of a what kind of a world would that be? Marshall is saying, no, this is not the way things will run. The Constitution says it's not the way things will run. And, and that's what he um, rules in Fletcher versus Peck. All right. Now, here we are, you know, more than 200 years later. Why is John Marshall important to be studied today? What's well, the impact? A couple issues are very hot. I mean, there, there's talk if the Democrats take, were to take the House. The, the, there was talk that maybe they would impeach Justice Kavanaugh, you know, because of, uh, of alleged um, lies that he told during his testimony. They would impeach a Supreme Court justice. Uh, the first time this happened was when Marshall was chief justice. One of his colleagues was impeached by the House and tried by the Senate. Uh, this is Justice Samuel Chase. Marshall was actually called to testify at his trial in the Senate. Uh, it looked as if Thomas Jefferson's party was going to just go through all the justices of the Supreme Court and pick them off one by one and leave, you know, get rid of them and leave vacancies, which Jefferson could then fill with good Republican Party members. Uh, Chase survived his trial. Um, so I, I would say that's a precedent of interest for people thinking of impeaching Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, this was when the, the party that was interested in impeachment had control of both the House and the Senate, plus the White House, and yet they still couldn't pull it off. So I would just offer that as a word to the wise. Uh, a second thing that might be relevant is treason. We heard that word thrown around a lot when the uh, Russian investigations were at their height a couple months ago, the Mueller investigation into, you know, to what degree uh, the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia, if they had at all. And, uh, you know, the rhetoric of treason uh, was being used. Well, uh, John Marshall ruled on a treason case while he was chief justice. This was the treason trial of Aaron Burr. Marshall heard it as a circuit court judge uh, in Richmond, which is where Burr was tried. And Burr was acquitted because Marshall read the Constitution very strictly. Uh, treason is only for giving aid and comfort to the enemy, that is, an enemy in time of war, or it's for waging war upon the United States. And there have to be two witnesses to an overt act. 
And the government was not able to prove that. Now, you know, Aaron Burr probably was up to some very bad stuff uh, in the Western United States around 1806-1807, and he certainly sent out secret feelers to both Britain and and Spain to try and get their help in in splitting up the United States and and maybe setting Burr up as the emperor of Mexico or some sort of harebrained scheme of his. But the government was not able to prove this in court. And so Aaron Burr walked. And I think that sets a precedent for taking treason very strictly. Uh, A third thing that might come up is is efforts to either to pack the court. People are talking about that. If if the Democrats uh, should win the presidency in 2020 or 2024 and Trump has put all these um, conservative justices in, well, why couldn't the Democratic Congress increase the size of the court and, you know, put in put in enough uh, uh, Democrat appointed justices to overbalance it? Uh, well, there were proposals um, not to pack the court so much, but to to try and loosen Marshall's grip on it when he was chief justice. There were proposed amendments to uh, restrict the jurisdiction of the court or to say that the Senate would have a veto on court decisions that were on constitutional questions, or to say that if it was a constitutional question, there had to be 10 justices and a majority of seven. You know, you had to have seven, you know, to to rule on a constitutional question, a supermajority. None of these amendments um, became amendments. Uh, they all they all died on the vine. But there was, you know, there was enough sentiment that people were talking about this. And again, I would say, well, this is this is maybe a precedent for such discussions. Now it's harder than people think. You know, people now it's on the left. It used to be on the right. There used to you used to hear a lot of talk on the right. Well, let's limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Uh, easier said than done. And and the first example of it being hard to do was when Marshall was chief justice. And I, I think there uh, the relevance of him is that he made the court uh, authoritative enough that people were not willing to tamper with it casually. And that's a legacy from his time, for good or for ill. I mean, may, maybe there are times, well, certainly in the Dred Scott decision where the court uh, makes decisions that are horrendous, but part thanks largely to Marshall's tenure, uh, we have to we have to live with them. Uh, we have to find other ways to deal with these problems than you know rebuking the court directly. All right, the name of the book: John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court. The author. Richard Brookheiser, thank you for bringing history to life on Connor's Corner. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things Richard Brookheiser talking to him, you know, he reminds us that politics weren't necessarily civil in the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, that a lot of congressmen, political officials would call each other out on duels. Of course, we all know about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, but it was not uncommon back then. So people did, as he mentioned, people did hate each other back then with a passion. So things really haven't changed all that much. Now, if you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, we're doing seminars, and this is going to be our last seminar for the year. Tuesday, November 27th, we're going to be in Bay Ridge at the Greenhouse Cafe. Always happy to be at the Greenhouse Cafe. Wednesday, November 
November 28th. We're going to be at Buckley's at 2926 Avenue S. That's Nostrand Avenue and Avenue S at 11, 3, and 7. Bay Ridge, we're going to be at 11, 3, and 7. And then on Friday, November 30th, we're going to Queens and Bayside. We're going to be there at the Adria Hotel. I think we've been doing seminars at the Adria for about 20 years right now. We're going to be there at 11 and 3. So if you have any questions, this is going to be our last set of seminars for the year. And probably next time we do seminars will be April of next year. Because usually I don't like doing seminars in the middle of winter. We get snow. You know, we end up talking to an empty crowd or whatever, an empty house. Well, it's not safe because a lot of people that come are elderly and it's just not safe to get out. Right. So if you want to see our seminars, call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Beth, I think you have one announcement for our friends at Regina Pachas. Yes, I do. Regina Opera Company. Here we go again. Um, November 17th and 18th. November 24th and 25th, they're doing Hupperdinks, Hansel and Gretel, and that is so much fun. And it's around the holidays, so everybody should go. It's now, it's at, the performance is at OLPH Catholic Academy. That's 5902 6th Avenue at 60th Street in Brooklyn. Um, please go to their op- their website, Regina Opera website, and you can get your tickets there. It's a wonderful group of people, and we'll put it on our Facebook page if you forget what I've said. Okay. Okay. And again, let's not let's not forget to watch Stand Against Evil. It, it sounds That's like right. I don't know talking about witches and death, but it still sounds a little funny. So I guess we'll, <laughs> we'll you know we'll take a look at it. I think David Kincaid is playing his exit music again, which means it's time for us to go home. Bye-bye, everybody. Listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on Tuesday, November 27th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 Third Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., then in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S on Wednesday, November 28th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and finally.
finally at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, on Friday, November 30th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.